0: Good morning, morning. Um, if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning, Uh, so we're going to start the the book of Matthew together today, Um, so good timing for Christmas. And we're going to keep going for several months, and by several I may mean like dozens, I don't really know. Um, I've, I've got about six months planned out, and that's got us through chapter 5. So you could do the math. Um, but we're, we're going to start today, and we're going to do verses 1 through 17 today. Um, saying that you have a favorite book of the Bible is kind of like saying you have a favorite child. You know, you, you don't really talk about that. You don't do that, but I'm willing to bet um, that you are drawn to certain books of the Bible more than others. Um, I don't know when the last time you went through Ezekiel was, just like out of compulsion and enthusiasm, but it probably wasn't recent. But if we did poll the church on favorite books of the Bible, I, I bet Matthew would be mentioned more than a few times. And I say that because historically that has been true of the church. This fascinating fact more citations found in the early Christian writers to the Gospel of Matthew than any other book of the Bible. More citations there. One scholar uh, said this it is no exaggeration to state that the faithful whose words and the deeds of the first and into the second centuries came to know the words and the deeds of Jesus based almost exclusively on the gospel of Matthew. Now, why would that be the case from the very end of the first century all the way through the very end of the second century? Why would it be the case that, that Matthew's gospel would play such a crucial role? This is a really important question because if the answer to this question determined, it's the the lens that you put on to read through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Why he is saying what he is saying and why the church, the early church, in its initial reading of this Gospel found it so important. So by the time that Matthew was writing this Gospel, Jesus' death um, had kind of put an end to the messianic movement that was surrounding him. Like, okay, he's dead, it's over. But then there are all these rumors, right? The Jesus resurrected, that he appeared to all these people, that he had preached about the kingdom of heaven, and now all that was clearly true, that um, he really was the Messiah of Israel. And it just began to make a real social problem and a political problem and a religious problem. It, it just, it caused a stir, and so wherever, you, wherever Judaism was strong in a certain community or a city or, or a country, it was impacted by this very persistent and pervasive incursion of Jews becoming Christians, which caused all sorts of religious havoc in the temples where they were practicing uh, their faith. And it would wreak all this social havoc and the civic havoc. And it even impacted the nation of Rome and the city of Rome. Because Christians were claiming that Jesus was raised from the dead, and they were pointing historically, physically to an empty tomb to justify, in part, uh, their claim, and Jews were then to read this or Matthew. Jews would counter the story, say Noah's body was stolen, and so it created all this havoc, and so much so that Claudius, in the city of Rome, expelled. All of the Christians and all, all of the Jews, all of the Jews from Rome, all of them were kicked out of Rome. And, and Jews, Christians were considered a sect of Judaism as far as Rome was concerned, so out they went. There's nobody left in Rome. And then Caesar did something else. He had a local governor set up a, a decree, and there he put a, um, it was an imperial decree, put a plaque in the ground. Um, it was called the Nazareth Decree. Of cap- and it was the threat of, check this out, it was the threat of capital punishment for anybody who messed with a grave, anybody who messed with a tomb. So it tells you why they were taking it all so seriously. It gives us some insights into Matthew's narrative because you have all this drama and all this uproar and all this just, it's just wreaking ha- The gospel is wreaking havoc. And so um, uh, it, there's, it's controversial. And, and there's all this conflict between Jews and Christians and Jesus is empty tomb. So all this is the context in which Matthew says, I tell the story of what's happening here. And led by the Holy Spirit, he writes his gospel. And he's writing it for this purpose. He is writing it to establish Jesus' identity as the Messiah so that Jews would recognize him as the, the one who is the heir to the King David, uh, King David, the throne. And he is also writing um, t- so that the Jews can understand the promises of the blessing that they are supposed to be to all nations that was coming out of Abraham. So he's, he's, he is trying to coerce and convince and demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus really is the Messiah and that being the Messiah... They were to, uh, he was also to be the light to the other nations in the same way that God promised to Abraham. Therefore, Jesus is not just the Messiah for the Jews, he is the Messiah for the Gentiles. Make sense? That's what, that's what Matthew is trying to do. So you've got all this hostility, and you've got Matthew trying to solidify the church identity, the church's identity is. This is who, this is the people of God. It's the church, those who believe in Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles who believe in Jesus. These are the true people of God. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about your economic background. It's not about all the religious things that you may have had growing up. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That is what he is trying to do. So if you're going to read Matthew, you're, you want a validity to your study it, To bring some uh, solidity to your identity as a Christian, first and foremost, not your identity as a Republican or a Democrat, not not your identity as an American or a European or some other country, some other thing, right? No, your identity as a Christian, not your identity as a white person or a black person, none of those things that the world would identify you as. It's your identity as a Christian, somebody who claims to follow and imitate the person of Jesus. And therefore, the church gets solidified, the church gets built up, the church gets united because the people who make it up may be American, may be Australian, may be European, may be African, may be white, may be black, may be brown, may be red or yellow... Whatever other label you make, there We're all those things. We find our unity in the person of Jesus. Yes, make sense? That's what Matthew's trying to accomplish in his gospel. And that's why we're going to study it together. Now tonight, because of your kindness to us, I'm going to share a meal with the pastors and their wives. And my wife, too, will be there, of course. And we're going to go to a concert. It's her birthday, after all. <laughs> Um, We're going to go to a concert. We're going to go to Behold the Lamb with Andrew Peterson. Very exciting. Which I've I've never been, never been to the Ryman, never seen Behold the Lamb. So I'm pretty pretty pumped. Thank you for this kind. Thank you so much. Um, And uh, there are a lot of songs that will be sung tonight. But none is as surprising or as memorable as the song that is Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Which is Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. And that's going to be our text today. Now we, I am. The sermon's supposed to be over in ten minutes, which is unfortunate because I still have three pages to go. Um, so, for uh, your levity and our brevity, I'm going to skip the scripture reading, in its formality, and just go straight into the text with you in Matthew one, one through seventeen in the sermon. Okay, is that all right? All right, very good. So if you need to stretch, go ahead, just because you like the liturgy and standing and read the Scripture. You can stand and relax, but I'm going to just go straight in. Now, the genealogy is fascinating. It is a little overwhelming. It may be a little boring to read. It's, it's not like any of us wake up on a regular basis and think, I think I'll look back and look at my 23andMe or Ancestry.com family tree and do some reading today. It, it, I get that. But if you just pause and think about the stories behind the names, you start to get, it's just fascinating what is, what is taking place. It is also interesting just because it raises some questions. Um, so the, the, my message today is not going to answer all of the questions like why are Matthew's and Luke's genealogies different? Or why are their generations missing? Or why is the number 14 significant? That stuff's cool. It's great. But I'm not, I'm not going to do that this morning. I, I want to talk about Christmas. Um, I want to talk about Jesus coming. And I want to share with you just three really simple, clear things that this genealogy does, among other things that it does. But I want to show you three things. I want to show you that God operates on his own timeline. He, oper- he does what he wants to do. He's God. He is who he is. I am who I am. I I am the call, I cause what I cause. He operates within his own timeline. Number two, he operates in our timeline. God's involved in history. He didn't just wind a clock and he's watching it go. He's engaged. He's involved. He created and he sustains it. So he operates in our timeline. And third, the way he does it, you and I would never draw it up that way. That's the third thing I want to show you. So number one, God operates in his own timeline. Look at, the, look at your genealogy. At the very beginning it says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And right away that reminds us of something. Jesus was promised for hundreds of years. He was promised for centuries. God came to David and said, I'm going to put one of your descendants on the throne and he's going to reign forever. He'd come to Abraham and said, Abraham, come out of your tent. I'm going to look at the stars. You can't number them. That's how many descendants you're going to have. That's how many descendants families of the earth we be bless because of you and even with those promises it was 2000 years at least before mary would sing her song and she would say that he re- that god remembers his promise to our father abraham 2000 years or more for the fulfillment of the promise made and in fact there were 400 years between the birth of jesus And any God communicating to His people at all through any prophet? There was this four hundred years of silence. There was this things look bad through a prophet. Things look bad, but Jesus is coming. Things look bad, but God's going to do something about it. Things look bad, but don't worry, God's going to fulfill His promise. And then, when all of the talking of the prophets was done, four hundred years, nothing. Nothing. God operates on His own timeline. If you take all this together, two thousand years for it to unfold, four hundred years of silence in the middle. The takeaway for me is that we cannot judge God by a calendar. I judge everything by a calendar. Every event, I, if, there's a, if there is a disagreement in our marriage on any given day, it is I didn't have that in my calendar. I didn't know about that cuz I didn't put it in my calendar. All kinds of things, and the kids and the stuff and the twerk and the you know, it's in my calendar. I can't judge God by my calendar. He operates in his own timeline and he's not sharing his Google calendar with me. I couldn't understand it if he did. And because he operates on his own timeline and not mine or not even the one I would prefer, he looks slow. He looks indifferent. He looks forgetful. But he's none of those things. He's not behind. He is not late. He is not forgetful. He is not indifferent. He just doesn't care about my timeline. He's very careful and caring and compassionate about his own. He had a plan for Abraham and Sarah. It's not the one they had on their calendar. He had a plan through Manasseh. It's not the one we would have put in history. He had a plan in the Babylonian exile. It's not the one we would have wanted. He had a plan in 400 years of silence. We'd prefer to hear him more often. God often seems to forget his promises. But if there's anything that this list of ancestors tells us, it's that he never forgets. He just operates on his own timeline. The entire genealogy illustrates this. But just look at Isaac And Jacob and Judah. In verse 2, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, and Judah fathered Perez and Zerah and Tamar. Verse 2, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah. Think about what went on there, gang. We just studied this in Sunday school, right? How did Jacob father Judah? How did that happen? Lying. Jacob lied. He disguised himself as his brother Esau to get the birthright from his father Isaac. And because of that, because of that lie, Jacob fractured his family. Esau came after him. Jacob was a fugitive. He ran for his life. His family was broken up. He experienced all these terrible consequences. Yet because he had been a fugitive, he met Rachel, the love of his life. And from that union came Jesus. That means that even though Jacob blew his life apart, he blew his life up with sin, there were real consequences of sin. What he did was absolutely wrong, but God does not put our lives on plan B. Rachel, Jacob, that was not plan B. It's not the way you would put it in your calendar. It's not the way your task list went. It's the way God's went. He's operating in his own timeline, and he does it, within history he does it within our timeline god operates within our timeline he operates within our timeline the genealogy reinforces for us that god acts in history god has done something in history actual historical events have happened and how we respond to them is the defining moment of our lives christianity is not a philosophy It's not a set of ideals or principles that we create and think about and create a system of life around. It's a response to historical events in which God acted, and because that is the case, the whole world has to deal with it because it actually happened. Uh, Thirty years ago, Tim Keller was giving a talk on the historicity of the Gospels, and he got after this talk. He got a letter in the mail before email. You get letters. And this is what the letter said. The guy was mad. I mean, he was mad. He said, you know, it wouldn't have been so offensive if you had just said that you personally believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. That wouldn't be offensive. But you kept trying to say that these were historical facts. You kept trying to say that Jesus was historically and literally and physically Raised from the dead. You kept trying to say he really was born in a manger, and what's so offensive about this is that if these things are historical facts, I have to believe them or reject them. It's not just your choice. It's not just your thing. It's something I, we have to respond to, and that's a, that's irritating, isn't it? That's irritating. If God is operating within our timeline, that means we have to reckon with who he is and what he is doing. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just an idea. It's something that we have to take seriously because the claim is this actually happened. Christmas is not merely the celebration of principles or ideals. It is a celebration of God operating On his own timeline, within hours, he actually moved and did something. And the last thing I want you to see is that he confounds the world by doing it his way. So in Matthew's time, take a look at this genealogy. And this is still true today in some circles. The the purpose of a genealogy was to validate a person for his leadership role. It's a form of credentials. It's your resume in a way. You would say, I am somebody because of who my ancestors are. Therefore, you should take me at this level of seriousness, right? So, when you read Jesus' genealogy, you can tell that God wasn't trying to prove anything to anybody who cared about such a thing. I mean, there is a genealogy because he is historically a real person with a real past and real ancestors. But if you read the genealogy, you're not impressed. Why not in those days? You would not be impressed. Why? Number one, because there are women in it. There are women in Jesus' genealogy. There's Tamar. There's Rahab. There's Ruth. There's Bathsheba, although she's not named. Uriah's wife is the name. Mary is in there. To put women in a genealogy is a huge departure from normal cultural norms of genealogies. He just wouldn't do it. Women were ignored in genealogies. Women didn't count in genealogies. All that mattered was the Father and the Son. And yet here, led by the Holy Spirit, Matthew puts at least five women inside of his genealogy as if God is to say the Messiah is proud of the fact that women are in his family. The status of women is forever changed by the fact that just Matthew would put them in the genealogy. And then there are Gentiles. In the Jewish Jesus genealogy, right? So, an Orthodox Jew we will see this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. An Orthodox Jew wanted nothing to do with Gentiles; they called them dogs and other things, and by the way, the Gentiles had plenty of terrible words for the Jews as well. Really, Orthodox Jews were very careful not to even walk in places where Gentiles had walked, lest they touch something that a Gentile had touched, making them ritually unclean, unfit for the presence of God, etc, etc, etc and right out of the gate, Matthew wants you to know that the King of the Jews. And the king of the universe is related to a Gentile prostitute named Rahab. And related to Ruth, a Moabitess, who was born on the wrong side of the Jordan. Now why would Matthew do this? Because Jesus is proud of people who have the wrong pedigree. Jesus is more than happy to associate with people of the wrong nationality, of people of the wrong race. There are Gentiles in Jesus' genealogy. God confounds the world by what he has done. And thirdly, and lastly, and most applicably, there are sinners in this genealogy. Judah and Tamar, that was an incestuous relationship. Rahab, as I mentioned, she was a prostitute. Bathsheba... She was the first adulteress with David before becoming his wife. What does this mean? What does this mean? What this means is that it doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter where I am the love and the grace of God comes to me anyway. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you are. The love and grace of God goes to everyone and anyone. Everyone needs it on the one hand, and everybody can receive it. Anybody, no matter what you are, no matter what you have done, if if the Lord can use them to bring about His Son, then that tells us right then and there that the Son welcomes such people. The genealogies are a table of contents for all of the lives that God's grace and love touches. That includes incestuous people, God says, I love you. Adulterous people, God says, I love you. Pagan people, God says, I love you. And Jesus did the same thing. He'd say, come to me. Come to me. I'll be proud of you. I will love you. I will change you. I, I, you, you have an honored place in my family, and it doesn't matter what you've done. It's because he's going to do it for you, and he did. Let's pray together. Father, this compels belief, the historicity of your son, his, his roots, his ancestors, his genealogy. It compels belief. It compels belief in the sense that it requires us to reject any sense of sovereignty or providence that we have of our own lives and simply acknowledge the fact that you are who you are and that you are in charge of our lives. It compels belief in that this is not just a philosophy that we follow. We are reacting to historical events. Jesus came. He was perfection, son of God. He Lived the life that we cannot live in perfection and in holiness, and He paid the price for our sin in His unjust death, and He overcame death through the resurrection, and lived among us uh, and revealed Himself uh, over several days and weeks to hundreds of people who testified to Him actually being physically present, and we have written uh, documents that have never ever been. Uh, demonstrated to be false, we have to react to the historicity of Jesus. And if you are who you say you are in these words, it compels belief or rejection. And we ask today that we would believe. And we are compelled to believe because of how you have worked in a way that is mysterious. It confounds belief that we, that you, that you would love us, that you would, that you would involve and engage sinners and Gentiles and, and there's just a lot of messed up people that the, the world would otherwise reject. But you use And you welcome and you love. So we ask that we would believe today, that we would respond with belief and give our lives to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.